This is the John Oakley Show podcast. There have been some who have also languished on waiting lists. And uh, in some cases, many, many cases, actually too many uh, people have expired. Uh, There's some data just out from secondstreet.org. It's groundbreaking research. And uh, they show there were 1,480 surgeries that were canceled in 1819, 2018-19, as a patient has passed away. But we can more or less surmise that people waiting patiently while COVID-19 has left capacity uh, on hold, I guess, as hospitals anticipate a surge or even during the second wave. So this continues on as a, a consequential consideration. Joining me on the line to help extrapolate this data and what it all means going forward, Colin Craig, president of secondstreet.org, Real People, Real Stories. Colin, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Phil, thanks for having me. So interesting, this report. I mean, you're using data from 2018-19. What's the point or purpose of the report now using that data? Well, John, I'm sure many of your listeners will remember the tragic story of Laura Hillier, the uh, young Ontario student who uh, sadly passed away a few years ago. She was uh, fighting cancer and had a bone marrow donor lined up and was ready to go, but the government hadn't rationed enough funding for the healthcare system, so she had to wait, and she waited seven months, and sadly she passed away uh, before her opportunity for surgery came up. So stories like that, we've been doing lots of research into healthcare. We've seen a lot of stories like that. We thought, well, let's try and get some data from governments on just how many surgeries are are being cancelled because patients have, have sadly passed. And so we filed information requests across the country, and the 1,480 figure that you mentioned, that's from hospitals and health regions that cover less than half of Canada's population. Um, we actually found that a lot of hospitals and health regions just told us they don't, they don't even track this data. So we think the true figure is probably at least in the 4,000 range. And so can we then safely say, as we're uh, seeing during COVID-19 first phase and now again entering second phase, depending on the jurisdiction, that there are hospitals that have canceled elective surgeries and we're having consequences. Uh, People are dying on these waiting lists. Uh, Do you uh, get any indication or can you even confirm that maybe there are even more casualties than the 2018-19 data show? I, I think that we could reasonably assume that the number would be higher because of uh, how governments have responded to COVID. Uh, as you mentioned, in, in many parts of the country, they've simply uh, postponed uh, various surgeries, diagnostic scans, meetings with specialists, all those types of things. So there was a story, I believe it, yeah, it was earlier this year from Ontario noting that there were at least 35 cases where they think uh, patients have died from heart-related problems that just weren't treated because of COVID. So I I suspect we're going to see a a lot of uh, patients, unfortunately, passing away uh, while on waiting lists. And and one thing I would note for your listeners is that the the data that we're talking about in our report, that covers a lot of different types of procedures. It, It covers cases where a procedure potentially may have saved a patient's life in the in the case of uh, heart surgery, cancer operations, those types of things. But a lot of surgeries, too, that affect a patient's quality of life, uh, cases where patients uh, waited, in some cases, years to get cataract surgery, and they never got it. So perhaps their remaining years were spent with 
blurry vision and, and problems with their eyesight. Uh, people waiting in pain for hip surgery, knee surgery. So, I mean, we know what happens when, when people are living with chronic pain. Quite often they get stuck stuck at home. It's it's too difficult to go out. And they, they have concerns about living on T3s and painkillers and that. So there's a lot of consequences from uh, these long waiting lists that we see in Canada and, and patients sadly uh, passing away before their turn for surgery has come up. Right. Uh, you're only quantifying the death count as opposed to the quality of life, which we can assume might be exponentially higher. But this is something that certain experts on this show, uh, many who are outliers from the scientific consensus, are talking about as a shadow pandemic. Uh, is it fair to call it that? You know, that this is the hidden, dirty secret that's happening all the while, while we focus on cases and hospitalizations otherwise, which are easily enough quantified. You know, the public health reports come out every day. But this is the real uh, elephant in the room, the shadow pandemic. Oh, oh, for sure. 100% it's out there. You know, we hear of small business owners losing their businesses. You know, they, they spend their whole lives working towards their business and trying to keep it going and employing people and putting food on the table for their own family and then suddenly you know the government shuts them down and they just they can't get through it so you end up with people with depression and and sadly some are you know have had suicidal thoughts and that so there, there's all kinds of um consequences from the lockdowns that people are feeling that have nothing to do with with covid they're not suffering from covid they're suffering from the covid lockdowns and other government policies, people, you know, living alone, being unable to visit with friends and relatives, well, that can have serious consequences too. So I think it will be important to uh, examine those costs and, you know, the days ahead. Uh, for now, what we've been trying to get at is, well, what, what's happening with patient suffering in the healthcare system? And as we've been talking about, our numbers are from pre-COVID, and I, I suspect that they would be even worse once we get the data for, um, uh, for this year. Colin, finally, uh, tell me about the Leger poll you commissioned at SecondStreet.org. Eighty-one uh, percent of Canadians strongly or somewhat agree with governments publicly disclosing each year the number of patients die while waiting on uh, waiting lists. I mean, uh, this might be very instructive to know these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, I, I think there's very strong appetite for learning more about patient suffering in the healthcare system, and especially cases where patients are dying before they have their opportunity. For surgery, and, and you know, one point I would just make quickly is that governments often hold businesses to a very high standard when it comes to workplace injuries and not following procedures and so forth. In some cases, governments report on bruising that happens in a workplace. Well, for goodness sakes, there are people dying in the healthcare system, and governments don't bring this data to light. It, it's up to groups like ours to go out and try and dig it up and, and examine it. And so one option that we've identified is for governments to be a lot more transparent and upfront about uh, what's happening. It's a great report and uh, just out from uh, secondstreet.org. I appreciate you joining us, Colin, and giving us the update. Thank you. Thanks a lot, John. Colin Craig, president, secondstreet.org. Real people, real stories. We just had a spate of... uh, I guess auto thefts up in uh, the Peel region, Mercedes primarily were the things that were being stolen right from people's driveways, no less. And uh, it was a series of young men, I think three young men, two from Peel and uh, one from Hamilton who have been charged by the police now. But when it comes to this kind of theft, it's an ongoing concern, obviously, as the owner of the vehicle, but also the insurance people uh, are quite disturbed by what they're seeing as a trend of electronic theft 
from right there in people's own front yards, in their driveways, high-end vehicles especially. And to that end, we've now got the Canadian uh, annual list of top 10 uh, vehicles that are stolen. This just published by the Insurance Bureau, who's Brian Gast, has joined us, National Director of Investigative Services for the IBC. Brian, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, and so you've just published this list. You know, I was just citing, for example, that story out of Peel Region where uh, the high-end vehicles, Mercedes, primarily were stolen. They don't actually make your top 10 list. Uh, looking at the list, it's mostly, I won't say pedestrian vehicles, but Honda, Lexus, Ford, and Toyota that make the big list. Uh, I mean, are people targeting specifically and for what reason? Yeah, and I think that's a good question. And uh, you'll, you'll see this year's list is a little bit different. It's uh, really um, one of the trends that we're seeing is some of the uh, electronic overrides uh, we've, we've talked about it in the past, and now we're starting to see it uh, in some of the real-life cases. As you know, we work quite hardly hard with the uh, domestic and, and uh, international law enforcement, and uh, they're doing a great job. Uh, obviously, there's organized cr- crime groups behind some of these thefts, and uh, we're hoping that this top 10 list will be a reminder to uh, consumers and drivers of some of the things that they can do to prevent their vehicle from being stolen and uh, and uh, some of the risks associated to uh, these thefts. You talked about the Mercedes. It didn't make the list, but all vehicles, I think that's an important point. Just because your vehicle's not on this list doesn't mean, mean that uh, you shouldn't be vigilant and uh, doing precautionary measures to make sure that you do things that uh, uh, would make your vehicle a lot harder to steal. Um, as we know, in the, in the example that you cited, a lot of the vehicles are being um, stolen to order type thing and uh, shipped overseas. Uh, organized crime groups are behind some of these uh, these uh, crime rings, and uh, that's where law enforcement and uh, IBC and, and all partners are, are working together to, to try and combat that. Uh, some of the other things, uh, revinning, you're probably fully aware of that, to where a vehicle is uh, stripped of their original vehicle identification number and a false or bogus uh, VIN plate is put on their vehicle and sold to an unsuspecting consumer in Canada. Uh, obviously, sometimes uh, vehicles are stolen to be used in the commission of other offenses, uh, which is obviously concerning. And uh, sometimes, uh, monetarily, it's, a, it's an advantage to criminals to strip down a vehicle and sell it for parts. So those are just a variety of reasons. But I think one of the common trends that we're seeing this year is as vehicles evolve te- with technology, uh, the sophisticated criminals and uh, car thieves are also evolving, and they're looking for ways to bypass those uh, onboard systems. Well, you mentioned the uh, vehicle identification numbers uh, being falsified. I mean, you've got to be a fairly sophisticated individual, I mean, a crime ring that would be doing this kind of thing for future sales here in Canada or overseas. So the targeting, though, let me ask you, because let's just break it down, the top three or four that are on your list of the top ten, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada, uh, this is where cars that are stolen the Honda CRV four-door all-wheel drive, 2018 model year. It's uh, miles ahead of the others in terms of the count. 350 have been stolen. The next closest is about 100 fewer. But uh, why would this particular car be in the crosshairs of thieves? Yeah, that's a good observation and a good question. And it's uh, it's one that we work with the manufacturers, with law enforcement. Uh, obviously, there's uh, many of them on the road. Uh, the opportunity to, to find them uh, is elevated. Uh, as well as they're they're sought after as as uh, being a, a vehicle that's uh, um, basically uh, one of the ones that are targeted to steal. Uh, some of them being shipped overseas, 
and uh, for some of the other reasons that I mentioned, especially when it comes to, as I mentioned, o- overseas, would be primarily. And uh, you see Honda and you see Lexus, and uh, those numbers are, are fairly consistent with what we're seeing with law enforcement, or, or law enforcement uh, as what is being stolen as well. Well, right. Uh, while the Honda 2018 model year is number one, uh, number three is the 2017 model year. I mean, it seems like the Honda 2019 makes it in the sixth spot. Yeah, so... yeah. And, and it's, uh, I don't want to be an alarmist by saying all these vehicles are being stolen with uh, this new measure of uh, electronic uh, devices. Uh, th- there's other there are other ways of stealing a vehicle, which is one of the re- other reasons we like to do this annual event, just to remind people that uh, as the weather gets colder, it's not the best idea to leave your vehicle running while you run back into the home, uh, run into the store real quick, because uh, it just gives an opportunity to, for the would-be thief to hop in your vehicle and, and take it, uh, obviously, with the keys in the ignition. Sometimes people are storing their, ve- their key fobs in the cars just out of convenience, that they don't need to bring it in and out of the house. Just a, a quick hop in the car and uh, push the button and off you go. Um, those are some of the measures that we're, we're advising people to to uh, remind themselves just to be a little bit more prudent. When it comes to storing your key fob in the home, just, just don't put it inside on a plate as soon as you walk in the front door. Uh, we're suggesting uh, there's, there's pouches that you can get. Uh, there's little boxes you can get, specially made for key fobs. And uh, what it does is restricts the radio frequency from being emitted from that uh, device that uh, a would-be thief with uh, the right technology wouldn't be able to do a, a signal or a, or a, a relay attack and uh, clone that key fob. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, though. I, I was kind of curious about this electronic theft. If they have some kind of a, a master key, so to speak, electronically uh, sophisticated uh, tool that they would implement and uh, they can override whatever it is that you've got or really replicate it. I mean, in walking down the street or driving in the neighborhood, they see a car and basically uh, they can work the magic with the fob and away you go. Yeah, and, it, and it's unfortunate. It's not something we've seen a lot of in North America in the last few months, uh, years, but it's definitely a trend that we're starting to see where technology, there are devices that are, are able to do just as you ex- uh, described, uh, obtain that information from the key fob and uh, essentially making their own key fob uh, and have the ability to unlock, start, and uh, drive away with your vehicle. Wow, uh, that ought to uh, give us real pause for concern or consideration because uh, then you think you've got all the technology available to you with this newer, newer model, and even they can defeat that. Again, Brian Gass is with us, National Director of Investigative Services for the Insurance Bureau of Canada. You know, Brian, in your survey, you also say some of this is COVID-19 related and driving a market uh, for certain vehicles to be stolen. How so? Yeah, so that's one of the trends that uh, has been popping up in, uh, since March. Especially in the GTA, you see a lot of events uh, closing down of the 400 for street racing and drifting events. Uh, some of those part of those vehicles are uh, extremely modified, uh, and it's concerning that uh, some of those parts would be from stolen vehicles or stolen vehicles themselves. Uh, and it's a trend that we've seen uh, in recent months. Uh, law enforcement, uh, Peel and OPP in New York have did a, a big project led by Peel. Uh, Project Drift, I think it was, well, it was in the media a few weeks ago, and uh, just doing that, just modified street racing, uh, and it's something that we're seeing as well, some of the vehicles uh, that might not be quite in the top 10, but uh, definitely the smaller vehicles that are used for that type of uh, activity. Finally, this list, I mean, how does it impact insurance rates? 
Yeah, so there's numerous factors that go into uh, insurance premiums. This is obviously just one of them. Um, but again, it comes to the, the repair of vehicles and uh, the claims that are associated with it. But uh, again, there's multiple factors that, uh, that go into a premium, not, not just the fact uh, that the vehicle's stolen. All right. Uh, well, that's a snapshot again. You come out with the annual list. I appreciate your updating us with the current 2020 list. And uh, it involves Honda, Lexus, Ford, and Toyota for the most part in the top 10 and counting. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon, Brian. We'll talk again, I'm sure, next year, same time. Thank you very much. Thank you. You got it. Brian Gass. Uh, there is a story that we've been following. Uh, many, many people have been following the story of Alec Manassian, who went on a rampage with a red van two and a half years ago or thereabouts along Young Street between Finch and just north of Shepherd, as we know, uh, the consequences of which are uh, so horrific that uh, so many lives shattered. Uh, Ten people who were killed, 16 wounded in some cases uh, to a point where, uh, and there are many, many more besides, I, I guess you can say, uh, the expanded network of people who have been impacted by this. But for the third straight day, uh, the forensic psychiatrist who's expected to say Manassian should be found not criminally responsible for murdering 10 people is on the stand. Uh, now, Manassian admitted to killing and injuring 26 in total during this van attack in Toronto, as I say, uh, about two and a half years ago, April of 2018. Global's Dave Woodard has more on testimony from Dr. Alexander Westfall. If he could do it all over again, he would. But Alec Manassian told Dr. Westfall he'd be sure to hit more women with the cargo van and be sure that he died at the end. The accused also told Dr. Westfall if he were allowed out of prison, he'd consider another attack to up the body count and gain more infamy. In tying together his report and his findings that Manassian's not criminally responsible, Dr. Westfall says there appears to be a defect in Manassian's moral reasoning and in understanding the impact of his actions. Dave Woodard, Global News. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Dave, for that report, by the way. So it sounds, as a layperson's interpretation, like it's psychosis or psychotic behavior, but not according to the expert Dr. Westfall. Uh, like psychosis, but not really psychosis, it has to do with severe autism. Let's find out, will that fly as a not criminally responsible defense? Joe Newberger is Global News Radio's legal expert at Newberger and & Partners and is back on The Oakley Show. Joe, good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. Nice to hear from you again. Always a pleasure. Uh, by the way, you ever heard the autism defense in a court? Never. This is a first uh, ever. I don't think anybody would have ever thought of bringing such a case based upon autism spectrum disorder. Well, how credible is it then to your mind? Not credible at all. I mean, I, I, I know some of the doctors who testified quite well, like just Dr. Bradford, and I'm familiar with many disorders, but autism and what it's being tried uh, by this doctor to be made out to is that simply the, the severity of the autism somehow impacted his moral reasoning, as noted in that clip, such that he didn't have a full understanding of what he was doing was wrong. I think that's just incredible and and doesn't have any substance whatsoever the test under the ncr section is that you truly have because of an illness have to be robbed of the ability to know what you were doing was wrong in this case he absolutely knew what he was doing was wrong he may lack certain social understanding of a full impact of death and injury on the families and on the people hurt and on his own family but that doesn't mean his NCR. Many people do things without fully understanding its impact on other people, and that doesn't mean 
that they're absolved of those actions because of lacking those social skills or understanding. Again, with Joe Newberger, legal expert on the Manassian case being heard now in a court here in town. You know, it's interesting because uh, what Westfall, Dr. Westfall said, and by by the way, uh, he's the only defense witness. Uh, What do you make of that? I mean, is that again a long shot, a risky proposition? It is, because in a number of complex or high-profile cases, you will have a number of defense witnesses. You may, in fact, have a psychologist, a, a two a forensic psychiatrists. You may even call a social worker who is part of interviewing. And so you'll have a, a group of individuals. There are other cases which are extremely straightforward, where you'll just have one witness, but basically all parties are almost in agreement. So in this particular instance, this one expert who has been studying this disorder for, I guess, most of his career, is the only person that they hinge their defense on, and there is not another forensic expert to support it. So I think that's telling in and of itself. Well, interestingly enough, he says, and this is a quote, uh, the problem is Manassian's comprehension of the real horrific impact that something like this would have on other people. I don't think he understands that. To which Judge Malloy says, uh, yet Manassian understands his victims are dead, so uh, what is it that he doesn't get? Is she right. signaling the ultimate cynicism or skepticism about this defense? Absolutely. I mean, because the test is that you have to understand or be robbed of the ability that it was wrong uh, in Canadian society. This individual intentionally planned out the van attack, intentionally and as admitted that he drove onto the sidewalk with intent to kill and admitted that he killed 10 people and attempted to kill 16 others who were injured, and he had full knowledge that they are dead, and then, frankly, by his own actions, for himself to die, be shot by that officer, shows that he has an appreciation of the gravity of what he was doing. I think his entire statement shows that he understood a gravity of it. And what the doctor is talking about is simply a person's inability to fully appreciate what they did was wrong. But if everybody had that, we wouldn't have crimes committed. You know, people would have a more rational, better moral reasoning process that would prevent them from committing crimes. Well, that just doesn't happen, but that doesn't mean everybody who commits a crime is, is, uh, is NCR. And in a case where somebody suffers from autism spectrum disorder, um, that doesn't rob him of the ability to appreciate what he is doing is wrong. And sometimes there's impulsive acts of individuals that may be blamed on other factors. But in this case, it is so clear from those interviews and from his interviews with the doctor that he clearly knew what he was doing. I I think Justice Malloy's comment is, is also very telling about where she sees this going. Yeah, and to the point you just made, in many ways, this is an insult to uh, people or uh, parents of kids with autism, you know, that uh, there's something bordering on psychosis here. Uh, Although, you know, Westfall is saying, uh, like psychosis, but not really psychosis. Uh, He doesn't experience remorse. He doesn't experience regret. uh, But he also doesn't experience sadism. So uh, as a consequence, you know, uh, only two out of the three boxes ticked. So somehow uh, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. When you talk to about uh, maybe... Uh, root causes or cause and effect, if you will. Uh, this Westfall also says that having autism made Manassian vulnerable to the dark rabbit hole of the internet, and that sowed the seeds of his attack because he was uh, becoming obsessively saturated in horrific material found in online forums. And to wit, uh, I guess he took up with the incel movement and so on and so forth and uh, played this out going down Young Street like it was a video game. 
I mean, and this is where he caps his argument, Westfall does, by saying, I don't doubt that in the absence of this sort of thing, these influences, this would not have happened. I mean, is that a defense in any way, shape, or form? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, there are people who can be predisposed to um, being drawn to these fringe sites or these very radical sites and material and involving themselves in it. And it can be because they're lonely, they're isolated, they're depressed for many reasons. And they may be predisposed because of personality disorder. There may be indeed a personality disorder that's comorbid with autism here. I don't know. And I'm not saying that it ever is. You don't always have that with somebody who has autism. But that doesn't mean that they're less guilty of committing this offense and that they lack the ability. To me, this is so far off the mark. It reminds me back, you know, many, 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 many years ago, uh, the thought was in the forensic field that if somebody lacked the ability to have empathy, that they were essentially psychopaths uh, and had personality disorders, that they were NCR. But then the, the science matured and understood that the fact that they lack empathy for their victims doesn't mean that they're NCR. It just means that they may have very little rehabilitative abilities, but they're still guilty. And, and this is what it, it, it reminds me of, and, and to suggest that autism uh, at, in extreme states would lead to this, and therefore his an NCR to me is really insulting to you know, people who suffer from autism and who do wonderful and great things. And I just think it's twisting the law too far. And I have great respect for the defense team. I know them well, um, but I think this is such a stretch that um, Justice Molloy will have to write a very strong judgment uh, so that th- something like this doesn't get the light of day again. Right. In terms of a judgment, a rebuke, in other words, is kind of what you're saying. So put down a marker uh, so people can't trifle with this kind of an argument. Uh, am I reading you right on that? Absolutely. A- absolutely. And because it's reading it just all backward, in my opinion. And, and there are many people who get radicalized. And they may be susceptible, as I said, for all sorts of personality issues. It doesn't mean when they commit an offense or detonate a bomb or do something that they're less uh, culpable from a criminal standpoint. So, I mean, I don't see much of a difference here. Well, great clarification on your part. You're the best, Joe, as always. I appreciate your time. Uh, Look forward to doing it again somewhere down the road. You stay well. You too. Be well, Joe. Take care. Thank you. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's legal expert at Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.